immersive audio podcast. In conversations with industry thought leaders, practitioners, artists, academics, and entrepreneurs, discussing all aspects of this rapidly evolving industry, from art, science, and business to practical insights and project case studies. We aim to inform, educate, explore, and unite the community. Hello and welcome to Immersive Audio Podcast, episode 55. My name is Oliver Cadell, and my guest today is Varun Nair. Varun has spent the past 15 years building technology products, teams, and companies in the Silicon Valley, UK, and India. Most recently, he was head of AR VR audio software at Facebook. Prior to that, he co-founded Two Big Ears, an immersive audio technology company which was acquired by Facebook in 2016. Varun, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here and thanks for inviting me. Varun, whereabouts in the world are you at the moment? So I'm, I'm currently in the UK, currently in, in Edinburgh. That's my base camp. Um, moved over back from the US um, sometime last year. I must admit I've been a long time user and a big fan of your creation, Two Big Ears which subsequently was acquired by Facebook several years ago and was then renamed to what we know today as Facebook Spatial Workstation. We're going to come back to this in just a moment, but firstly, can you tell me how did you get involved with audio? So um, I guess it's a similar path as to many people in audio. I wanted to become a musician. I was I tried my hand at many things, many instruments, settled on the drums um, and this is when I was a teenager and, and that got me interested in, in writing music and making my own music and then of course the logical path from there was, which is how, how do I record music and um, I started with my creative sound blaster uh, trying to uh, build my own microphone out of broken speakers and all of that fun stuff. Um, and I just I just got really interested in in the idea of being a recording engineer. And after I finished my high school, I decided that that's it. I'm done. I'm I'm done with studying for a bit. So let me just dive into this world of into this career that I, that I wanted to choose. So uh, that got me started. So for um, eight years, I worked in in Mumbai on uh, a variety of things, um, recording music, uh, working. Um, as a sound editor, sound designer for films, games, uh, advertising, TV shows, basically the, the whole gamut of stuff. Um, at the end of it, I was keen to, to do new things. I was keen to try to be involved in more sort of creative projects. I was very much interested in interactivity of audio, which at that point I, I only had limited exposure to. Um, and I just wanted to take a break. So took a break, came over to Edinburgh for a one-year master's program. And that got me introduced to the whole world of Max MSP and all of that fun stuff again that um, uh, that probably sounds familiar to the career path of many people. And that long story short, that ultimately led to the formation of Two Big Years. It's a, quite a stark transition because you're essentially a, a content creator, obviously wearing multiple hats that many of us are familiar with. But then what led you to this realization that there was a, such a gap in the market, um, especially talking to 
slightly younger audience, it feels like spatial audio is such a buzzword these days and a lot of people have heard of it. Many have tried it. And I personally remember going back six years ago, it definitely wasn't the case and uh, there wasn't much going on. So to have a vision to to decide to go ahead and create this um, product was quite extraordinary. Tell us about the story of the creation of Two Big Ears. What was the motivation behind the idea? The ecosystem of immersive audio was very different back then. One of the nice things of hindsight is that all the events stack up really well to form a good narrative. But as any as all of us know, and even the smallest of things that we do, that um, we're often stumbling from one step to the next and trying to find our path through um, through to what were we doing? And that was that was very similar to uh, with our story as well. This was 2012. I was just finishing my master's, but during the master's degree, uh, which uh, the, the University of Edinburgh has has a really interesting sound design program um, that just brings together a whole bunch of people from lots of different disciplines. And one of one of the sub programs in that was um, having a a joint project with uh, people from across the university. So it could be film students, but interestingly also people who were studying the harder sort of science subjects, you know, if you if, if you can think of it that way, acoustics, um, signal processing, physical modeling. And it so happened that uh, I got randomly assigned to a project. Um, and in the project was was Abesh, Abesh Thakur, who was also, who was, was my co-founder at Two Big Ears. Um, we hadn't met previously, but we met on this project, and um, I was by then really deeply immersed in the world of Max MSP and trying to program these interactive environments. And as part as part of this project, we ended up uh, developing a location-based game, which again back in 2012 was uh, less commonplace. There were a few games on the App Store that that was starting to do that, but basically the the idea of of tying um, content to actual places in the real world was was just an exciting topic. So it was very far from being a, a mobile app. We ended up building this game that was played um, at the Meadows here in, in Edinburgh, which is which is a which is just a big park. Um, and um, the the idea of the game was that you would share the soundscape around you of these monsters crawling around and you'd use your phone to run after them and fight with them and destroy them. So it was just a fun project. But, you know, we were using uh, like three different computers on a local Wi-Fi network, streaming data back and forth to your headphones. And it was a bunch of things just put together with duct tape. And a key part of that ended up being spatial audio because we wanted people to virtual objects that were tagged in the real world, you know. It, it's pretty obvious today when you play something like Pokemon or, or many of the other AR apps out there, but it, at that point it was it was it was harder to pull off. Not impossible, but harder to pull off. Um, and from that game we felt that we had something interesting there. So um, all credit to Abesh, she was the one who um, so brought up this idea of us doing something with it. And we decided to try and make this game into something that would ship. That we could release as an app. Um, at that point, I had very little uh, knowledge um, in programming or actually building any technology. He he was the one um, sort of leading that area. And and part of his master's thesis, because he was studying acoustics and signal processing, 
he developed um, a special audio algorithm that was uh, that was pretty neat. So um, so that so started to snowball. Uh, towards the end of 2012, we felt we really had this cool idea for a game. We knew nothing about app making an app, so that's when we started building our first little Android app together. It was just the two of us. We needed more hands, so I started learning to code. I remember spending um, some time before Christmas in 2012 learning a bit of JavaScript online and then a bit of Java, just trying to make my way through all of this. Um, and 2013 was when we actually formally started the company, still thinking that we'd end up being a games company. But I think it took us a few months to realize that that was not really the direction that was that we were probably not very good at. So, um, But we were working on all these underlying technology concepts that that were exciting by, by themselves. And um, just my interest in creating content, being a sound designer, and knowing roughly how game audio worked and just thinking about how that could get mapped to um, game audio or anything else interactive was was exciting. So we just doubled down on building out that core technology, taking that very simple algorithm that we had, but then building on it and then extending it. And and that was sort of the, the beginning of the rabbit hole. Um, and we were lucky in a way because a few years later was a few years later was when the Oculus Kickstarter campaign happened and VR became VR had this resurgence and and uh, there was a real need for spatial audio and um, so yeah it was one thing leading to the next and obviously because of my previous life as a sound designer I was I was always thinking about tools and the accessibility of these tools and that God is uh, building our our Unity plugin and then spatial workstation and everything else that followed. I remember um, when I first came across the software, it just, uh, it looked so promising, so kind of fresh on the eye. And uh, obviously there were, there were other solutions, but nobody was doing such a good job at marketing it. And I really feel that you absolutely nailed it in terms of the the graphics, the interface design, the kind of the language that was used to describe things, the kind of the whole kind of package looked so appealing and uh, it was easy to understand the capabilities of the product. Can you talk a little bit about period of maybe looking at plain code and bits and pieces of ideas and kind of deciding how we're going to package it, how we make it look appealing and how we're going to communicate it to the, at the time, very small community of content creators and users? First off, thanks. Uh, it's really nice, nice to hear you say that about about special workstation because because de- I definitely didn't feel that way when we were releasing it. it, it you know, it was like we we were on a on a fast moving train that was powered by a rocket ship or something like that. It, I I hardly remember individual moments. It's it's also blurry. But to answer your question, um, I need to divert slightly because it 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 really was was important. It was an important moment for me. So um, between Let's say 2009 and 2012, or might have even been until, yeah, until 2014, actually, I was involved in designingsound.org, the website that is now uh, pretty much an archive, but back then was it was an active place for uh, where we would uh, in- interview sound designers, interview people involved in, in the craft of sound design, and it's just a ton of information that went on went up on the website. So I, I used to be involved in, in, in just... If I came across any anyone doing cool stuff, I try and get get an interview out of them and put it up on the website. So, um, and one of these interviews was with Andy Farnell, who um, 
those of you who don't know him, he's he's pioneered a lot of lot of the ideas for procedural audio, and and he's got a wonderful book called Designing Sound on this topic. And in my interview of him, he said something that stuck with me, which was he felt that uh, the most sort of successful, interesting people that that he's met are the ones who can think of things in a, in a multidisciplinary way, who are open to absorbing ideas from all sorts of disciplines. So if you're a sound designer, being able to think about film, understanding a bit more about film theory, or if you're a, a sound designer for a game, learning more about animation and art and actual game design helps you become a better sound designer. And um, that stuck with me for a long time. And I was lucky enough to be surrounded by people who who are really excellent in, at, at what they're doing. And this mostly people in my friend friends network. And they, they got me thinking about, you know, what are the kinds of books I should read for interface design or um, grouping of colors and, and exposing some of these interfaces to people and what that actually feels like. Um, and ultimately, how, how does all of, all, all of that roll, roll into a product? So I had some really good exposure that helped and some really good books that helped me think about um, these, these concepts. Parallelly, what really helped was we were trying, we were building a business and part of building a business is getting people excited about what you're doing and ultimately building a business that's sustainable, which is you have a decent business model, people understand what you're doing and what you're building is valuable enough for a transaction to happen. But that's ultimately what a business is, at least a traditional sense of a business is about. So um, 2012 to, to 2000, I'd say 13, 14 were really instructive years for us because we would go out and pitch what we were doing to people who knew nothing about audio, who knew nothing about games, who knew nothing about the space at all. When we were raising investment, doing all the things that you would as a company. And that sort of taught us to communicate what we were doing to people who knew nothing about the space we were in. But that actually then helped us to go back and communicate with people who were interested in the space, but were keen to get on. I remember even some of our early conversations with sound designers who've been you know, at this practice for a long time, where uh, at least binaural spatialization of audio hadn't really, uh, wasn't yet a strong need in, in the domain they're in. So to get even you know, people who know about the technology excited about its, its use cases was was important. What helped the most was creating these builds of like even the simplest build that we could pull together that had even one slider, we'd try and get it out to people and, and use it. And we were lucky enough for early versions of Spatial Workstation and even our SDKs to be used on some pretty cool projects. We got, got to do a project with Bjork. We got to do uh, projects with lots of other people who are at the forefront of using virtual reality in lots of crazy ways. And that's that's what makes being at the sort of start of an ecosystem really interesting is because you're just surrounded by interesting people trying to do things that you never even dream, dreamt of. So. Uh, just having exposure, plugging ourselves into that, building the product as people use them, helped us really distill it down to the simplest things that sound designers and developers wanted. I'm curious to hear a little bit more about the initial business model that you had in place prior to the acquisition, um, because it wasn't kind of something we come across too often in terms of how the users can access the software and how they had to pay for the usage. Can, can you elaborate what was the kind of the strategy behind that or was it kind of down to the specific logistical components or limitations of the technology at the time? Um, it was it was a bit of everything because we were, on one hand, we had people really just experimenting with this medium 
um, when we, I'm just talking about virtual reality here, because uh, even at that point, we had people using our, our products for things that were not really related to virtual reality. But VR and the early thinking behind AR was really where we wanted to go. And it was such an early stage industry that, um, you know, we had people experimenting, but we also had people with larger budgets doing really interesting things, whether it was for brands or maybe they were, uh, you know, paid by Oculus or, or Valve or some of these companies to make first party content um, who did have the budgets to spend. So as with, I'd say, anything related to building a business, the monetization aspect is one of the toughest things because you you want to have a model that works, not just for your customers, obviously, but also for something that scales with you as your business grows and as your products grow. So, so we had a whole bunch of models. We had a subscription-based model for some of our SDKs. We had like one-off licenses that you pay for um, the kind of game you chip, similar to the middleware sort of licensing we've seen for Wise and FMOD and so on over the past many years. Um, so it was roughly in that domain, but even back in 2013, 14, the subscription model was fairly new and we were one of the first audio companies to try that out. And it actually worked quite well. And uh, we, were, we were doing pretty well as a business. You, you're under no illusion that yourself and Abesh and your collective contribution was absolutely immense. The access to the free software played a really important role in democratizing immersive audio production, you know, amongst the grassroots communities and professional users as well. Can you share your thoughts on that six or however many years journey? What have you learned and observed over time from closely liaising and interacting with your user base? And I'm specifically referring to uh, Facebook forum, which has been uh, instrumental, um, I believe, but also beyond that. That's a really good question. And it has been something I've been thinking about over the past few months, especially as I, as I transitioned out of Facebook and I'm thinking about um, what my future, future projects are. Um, the past decade has, has definitely been like the most interesting of, of any in my life. Um, it's, it's been an absolute wild ride, uh, but an amazing ride, an amazing journey, and just the exposure. Uh, so while working at Facebook, the journey before that, all of it together. Um, a key part, I think, what always drove us was was the idea of, of a community. Um, we were very conscious of the fact that we were in the very early journey um, for a medium that would probably take many years, many decades even to to realize if all things go well. Um, and part of that is is being able to foster a community of people who uh, who can just explore this medium in in whatever means they can, whether it's a you know one-off project, whether it's a, something they're doing at a school or university or professionally. Um, but I think it's this second order, third order aspects of it that I'm most interested in always, which is, um, you know, the connections of people that you that you find, people who, who meet in, in whether, whether it's on an online forum or a community elsewhere, but building up these connections, starting to work together, uh, but also starting to bring in lots of different perspectives into, into what the technology is, what the medium is, how do you measure it, how, how do you measure if it's good enough, um, and Ultimately, what are the techniques people use to 
um, to make use of the technology. I think we we worked on one tiny slice of the overall universe of of of, of solutions um, that the, that the technology can have, but there's lots more room for innovation and lots more. Um, room for things to be done. And I think that's also been evident, especially in the past few years where you've seen many other startups and many other companies, both large and small, building building more tools and more technologies uh, for spatial audio. And I think that is what I, what I cared about and what I still care about was was less about like the initial momentum or, or what we achieved or what, what happened, but ultimately being at the other end and, and just seeing, um, just seeing a thriving or, or increasingly thriving sort of um, opportunities for people, whether it's building new tools or just working in, on, on new kinds of content. Over the past few years, my, my passion for the opportunities for spatial audio and audio overall for XR in general hasn't waned in any capacity. Um, but also having been on, on a personal journey of, of my own over the past decade, I'm also, and I think I mentioned this in my, um, in my post when I um, announced that I was leaving Facebook, which was, it just felt the, like the right time for me to step back and, and try my hand at something new. By no means is it a reflection of of where the technology is at or what the opportunities are. In fact, I'm, I'm all the more excited to to see where things go in the in the coming years and more. Um, just an opportunity for me to to try my hand at new things. Um, I've done many things over the past decade. Definitely enjoyed it, and keen to see where I can direct a lot of this energy next. Varun, uh, you've taken a long break and now currently working on some of your new ventures and projects. Can can you share a little bit about uh, where your mind is these days? It it's a bit all over the place. Um, I'm, I've got my hand in a, in a few different pies as of now. I'm, I'm working with with some startups, um, helping out where I can um, to just bring some of my make some of my experience that I've had useful. Some of them are related to audio, some of them are not. Um, but also increasingly trying to focus on on what the next um, big project will be. It's still early days, I'm casting my net pretty wide. There's lots of opportunities, both within audio and outside of it. Um, but it's still early days, so I don't have something concrete to share, but it's, I think it's a space that you can watch out for in, in, the, in the coming months. I can't help myself but to ask you because obviously you had such a unique perspective on our small industry um, and wider industry w- within spatial audio kind of sits in, which we could refer to as gaming industry and, and uh, XR industry as well. Where do you think this is all going in immediate future? But also I wanted to be, since we're talking about a very specific product with very specific functionalities, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on what else we need, what else we're missing, what else we want as a as a community of users. Is there much space left for innovation or, or we're kind of stagnating for the time being 
until, I don't know, the chips become more powerful or maybe the GPU audio rendering becomes more of a thing? Yeah, yeah. it's, it's a good question. Um, I don't think that um, there's less of a case for innovation. I think it's the inverse. There's lots of opportunities and I'll explain why in a second. Um, I think overall the immersive XR audio industry is also going through a transformational moment because um, there are devices out there, there is content, that there are people using it. It's it, The size of the market as well has, has grown quite a bit significantly compared to five, six years ago. But the industry as a whole, um, as well, is trying to figure out where it needs to go and is it all going to be about AR? Is it, is it going to be a mix of VR and AR? I don't think anybody really knows. And the only way you, you get to know these things is by trying it out and, and seeing seeing how, play, how it plays out. Nobody has a crystal ball for the future. But we can use this as an opportunity to extrapolate a few things. With, and this is where I think... There can be some key innovation as well as opportunities for for advancing the state of audio. So you you've got currently got two opposing problems in a way. You've got limited compute capabilities of devices, um, especially since things are going more and more in the direction of mobile standalone devices. Um, and it's not just compute, but everything else around it: power consumption, um, memory. Um, internet bandwidth, all of these things that play into each other. But the opposing bit to this is an increasing need for more vast open-ended scenarios. So it could be um, games that are not just limited to the levels you're in, but being more expansive than that. Or it could be aspects of the technology that blend into your real life, whether you want to think of it as a metaverse, or you just want to think about it as an AR application that is some form of utility uh, that helps you along um, with your day. But all of these things, or at least all of these examples, tend to be on the more open-ended side of the spectrum. It's not just limited to a single level. You're not just limited to um, a few play, play environments or a few user scenarios, but it can get quite expansive very quickly, especially as you start thinking about objects in the real world and how all of that needs to come together. So you've got these two opposing things. The need for uh, things that are more efficient, have have a smaller footprint, uh, whether it's memory, compute, power, so on, but also this need for things to be more expensive. And, and both of these are, are opposing quantities. When you have opposing quantities, that's when you can get a really good pulse on the opportunities for innovation because because real innovation happens when you've got these large constraints around which you need to work because that's when you actually get creative about the kinds of solutions that you need. Because if you had infinite power and infinite whatever, you can just, you know, download all the content you need and then just play it off. Um, But that's not going to happen. So when you've got these constraints, that's when you can start thinking Think about um, about re- about very creative solutions about how you'd approach it. So it could be extremely technical, which is how do I offload a bit of a bit of audio compute to some other chip um, in some low latency way, or it could be something else, which is how can I um, use very little internet bandwidth but maybe generate content on the fly and make things more generative. Um, 
But I think those those are very broad ways to think about it. But the real opportunities are somewhere in between. If I have an object in the real world, yeah, we we tend to think heavily on like the spatial audio components, reverberation, uh, occlusion, all the fun physical stuff. That's okay. But I think the, the the real complexities are how do you interact with it? How does it make sense um, to you as a user? How does it sound, not just realistically, but how does it sound in context? What happens when it needs to mix with the world around you? A lot of the technology problems, like hard technology problems, I'm, I'm an optimist, so I'll say that it will get solved in time. But it's the mushier concepts that are in between where you've got these opposing requirements that are a lot more interesting. And I think where we we need, we will, we will need more creative input, but also people who can bring the worlds of technology and creativity together. That sounds a bit ambiguous, but um, happy to to get into more details. Just would love to hear some some of the more specific examples that we can you know uh, connect to in terms of our everyday practice. Okay, so I'm just going to make up a thinking framework on the fly. So um, if you have to think about let's let's start thinking about audio in in an immersive scenario. Um, to, to really make this illustrative, let's think about it in a mixed reality or an augmented reality use case. Um, let's assume that we are in some future that where you have some kind of glasses or a headset on that helps you see and hear things that should be part of your environment. If you have to pull together a thinking model about what the problems are going to be, we can classify it into a few, into a few different buckets. One is engineering what I would just call hard engineering problems, which is how do you make the um, speaker technology as transparent as possible? And how do you make the microphone capture technology as focused as possible or as diffuse as possible? Because it, I, I say focused because you might want to really just focus in on the user's voice and nothing else to pick up their voice to transmit it elsewhere or to speak to an assistant or something like that. But you might also want to think, think about things more broadly, which is, if you want to make someone else feel like they're virtually sharing that space, you need to have some kind of an acoustic footprint of the environment. And that could be background noise, it could be um, reverberation parameters that are being extrapolated from the room around the person. I call those hard engineering problems because those are problems that are not completely solved today. You've got various research, industry prototypes, and so on, but nothing that's you know good to go and ship in a product right away. You, you've got far simpler versions that, that we see in the market. But I also call them hard engineering problems because it's quite evident in the, in the research that many of the companies are publicizing that they're all working on solving these things in some capacity. So if you assume and it is a big assumption that they will be solved in some capacity, then we need to start thinking about how else we would classify this problem. On the other end of the spectrum, you've got the actual content. So a sound needs to play. Let's think of, if, of it from the simplest game audio scenario, which is a one-shot sound. The sound just needs to play. In a typical game, you would, you would action that in some, in some way. You'd fire off an event that would play a sound. And then you would jump jump into your middleware or your game engine and set up a, a reverb zone of some kind or a reverberator and approximately try and get, get things to sound as you'd expect them to. I'll come back to this in a second. But as you start thinking about MR and AR and all of these different mediums, 
what happens in that in-between space? Now you've got, say, you've reached a point where you've got some some of these hard technology problems solved where you can capture a user's voice faithfully and then re-virtualize it in another environment. You can gather information of the of the acoustic properties of the real world that they're in and reconstruct it elsewhere. You, you do have a mechanism to play back audio and you have a mechanism to either generate or, or um, download or load actual recordings. But what happens in between? This is where I think the real tension starts to build because on one hand, you've got the, the harder engineering problems that are being solved that tend to focus more on, on being transparent and being realistic. But then you've got the content side of things, which are really about creative license, about breaking the rules, about making things sound different, about not really following the, the laws of physics. But then you've got this collision point in between, because as soon as you've got augmented reality in the mix or any of such technologies into the mix, whether it's display-based or audio-based or whatever, you've got this point of tension. And there is no clear path today about how you would go about solving that. As a, as a creative person, you'd solve it in, with whatever tools you have at that point. It could be you know, an XML file that you need to fill in a bunch of values. You might have actual sliders. You might have a standalone tool, whatever. And you might solve it on a one-off project. But this is where our thinking about how content needs to be deployed also will change and is starting to change because it's not going to be about loading up a level and going through it. There are big unknowns when you're developing a game because it's interactive. Any, things can happen, but it's not that anything can happen. Things can happen within a limited set of constraints. But as you start augmenting the world around you, things can start happening not in a limited set of constraints, but in a very, very large set of constraints. Many of those constraints that are unpredictable and largely dependent on the real world around us. So that to me is the heart of the problem that hasn't yet been grasped or solved. We'd solve it in one-off ways, but when you, if you start thinking about like some of the vision behind the metaverse or the vision behind bringing people together or playing games and whatever, uh, increasingly, some of these problems will need to be solved in a more generalist way. You, it's harder to solve them for one-off pieces of content, and it's harder to, to have strong differentiation between the hard technology and the content behind the experience. Ultimately, both of those need to be melded in, in, in a way that works together. When I hear you speak right now, there are a couple of things that scream at me, and those are cloud computing, edge computing, 5G. Do you believe that these technologies that are already in existence, but not quite in on the level most of us um, have access to in you know around the world? In your view, do you see those technologies uh, providing the necessary bridge to take the whole concept on next level? I see those technologies as a as a tool, as a as a tool that can multiply, that can have some multiplier effect, but not as something that can solve all the challenges we face. So one simple but a very reduced model to think about this is 
in a way, it's like your, you know, your your GPU technology getting better every few years. It makes your games look better, or whatever applications you, that use GPU makes makes things look better incrementally. That's what throwing compute at some of these problems are like. So, but in addition to maybe improving fidelity, it can also improve expansiveness. Like you can maybe have a, an open-ended world and so on that can be streamed in. But I don't think it, it solves the heart of the problem here and the heart of the challenges that, that, that we see ahead. Even if you have all the compute, let's, let's even say infinite compute, there are all the other challenges about making that making making content work in a truly contextual way um, without having to go and uh, define every single scenario out, but being able to to rely on some kind of an engine that can help you get there, but a, a, a sort of a, a creatively minded engine, not one that is purely based on on the physical world. After you saying this, I have uh, another well-known technology that screams at me uh, as we speak. It's artificial intelligence and uh, procedural systems. Yeah, so I'd say procedural systems are interesting because you, you don't have the problem of having to generate a, a ton of content for all the scenarios you can think of. And then when you have a scenario that you haven't thought of, you have to make do with what you have. So if we were to get on a time machine and travel into some time in the future, what do we expect to see when we step out of the time machine? I think at that point, I, I'd, li- I'd like to see a few things. One is having content that or having audio systems that can create some of these procedural um, audio environments, depending on the context, but not at the expense of of complete loss of creative freedom. What I'd also like to see when I step out of this time machine is um, is some kind of a contextual engine that can take some some of these creative that can have a few creative constraints defined by a designer and can interpret the world around it and map what it can see or hear or a sense of the world around it to those creative constraints that somebody has put down. In both of these examples, procedurally generated systems that can do this, as well as some kind of a contextual engine that can make sense and map the real world into some kind of a virtual world, they don't exist today. Um, Nor is there a clear path of how we'll get there. We did talk about this briefly uh, on episode 50 where we kind of were reflecting on where we came from, where we are today, where we're heading um, as uh, the niche of the industry uh, specifically talking about spatial audio and all the important components that associate with that Um, and uh, what we did touch on is this potentially maybe what we uh, know today as a kind of craft of sound design will become more of a engineering uh, rather than art. And what I mean by that is obviously a game engines are excellent examples and metaphors to what can be possible with audio, where you might be designing an, an ambience of, of a space, but instead of 
using libraries, recordings, um, whatever you're trying to do as as a as a creative person. Um, essentially, you using an engine which provides you with procedural audio options where you can just dial in wherever you want the room tone, the crickets, the thunder, the rain, with a number of characteristics and flavors in in uh, any kind of configuration and it's all uh, connected to the geometry of the space the kind of the everything that would reflect on kind of acoustic properties of the space and uh, you can still be creative and use those tools almost like mixing the colors um, and maybe that's where you kind of retain that kind of creativity as a, as a user but essentially all of the heavy lifting would be done by code, algorithm, computer processing, um, GPU. Do you see that maybe that's maybe the, in however many years or kind of iterations, it's no longer going to be about an insert plugin in DAW, but it's going to be more like um, working with a game engine and kind of, um, which which is very much happening already, but we we still kind of uh, stuck in that kind of old paradigm where you have to, create and implement and optimize and mix by using the tools and middleware that you mentioned before, but there's still room for innovation to make the whole process much more fluid and much more realistic. I see things slightly differently or might even be an extension of what you, of, of the picture you painted. So in, in what you described where you've got, you know, you've got an environment, you can, you are able to put in or describe parameters for the ambience, crickets, what have you. Um, that makes an assumption, though. That makes an assumption that is, which is, um, that you know enough about the environment to dial in some of those values, or you know enough about the scenario or the experience, or however, however you want to describe it, to enter in some of that information. Instead, where I, where I expect things to be is more of some kind of a modular system. And many of our game engines are not there yet. To, to some extent they are, but not completely. Which is, you've got a system and you can call it your um, nighttime ambient system in, in a temperate zone. I'm just making, I'm just making something up. Um, or you've got an ambient system for some kind of geographical environment and the parameters it takes in are time of day, um, weather information, and something else. Then you've got this other system, which is uh, water-based effects, which could be, um, again, depending on various factors, it could end up generating the sounds of a river or lake, like water lapping on the lake, or uh, a waterfall and it has a bunch of parameters, which is, um, you know, it could be the environment, it could be uh, wind speed, bunch of parameters. So what I see happening is many of these modules existing that by themselves can generate a bunch of information, in this case sound, based on a set of parameters. And when you walk in, when you put a virtual world together, it, it is about bringing a library of these modules together and you have, a, you have a system that can then 
make the connections between these modules and pass the information it needs. So in this case, as a virtual world is coming together, you've got a weather module that, that has a bunch of parameters. And these parameters might be set by the person making the application, which is I am that the user is going to be in this AR environment in their home, but it's going to rain regardless of where they are indoors, whether it's a living room or um, the bedroom or whatever. Those parameters are defined. So now this weather system is able to create a weather environment. And some of those parameters then get mapped to our ambient sound generator or water system. And then maybe those modules are able to communicate with each other to figure out how it all comes together. And maybe you've got a perceptual system that sits on top of it to actually help put the mix together in a, in a way that makes sense. And some of these would be based on actual physical values, which is the distance of the waterfall from listener and you know all, all the spatial audio stuff. But it also it could also be other contextual events, which is it is really important for the user to be able to hear that owl hooting away because that will lead them to the next task or what have you. Um, so that system should be able to duck everything else to ensure that that. So then, what role does a designer play? One is obviously building some of these modules and, and defining what they'd sound like. What, does, what would a cricket sound if it, if it sound like if it's got a bunch of these parameters? And what are the minimum and maximum ranges of these parameters? But also, should this module receive information from a weather system, it should be able to react in this range of parameters. And it might not be you know, a linear change. If you used a middleware system, you're, you're already used to this. It might not be a linear change. It might, it might be some kind of logarithmic change. It could be a custom curve, whatever. So you start thinking of things in a very modular way, but you're also able to then describe how it should all come together to some kind of a, an engine or a perceptual system that sits on top of it that takes into aspects of how we hear, how we perceive audio, and also can has sort of got this eye of Sauron or the ears of Sauron in this case on the whole system and can actually pay attention to what's happening and then make changes on the fly. Yeah, it definitely makes sense. And uh, it certainly feels like this could be an amalgamation of everything we touched on today. It's this kind of um, more expansive way of doing things, more modular way of doing things, but also heavily utilizing the concepts of procedural systems, but also defining the quality of procedural systems by machine learning, which I think is essential for computational efficiency as opposed to firing existing large files with the recent advancements in artificial speech and the way it sounds. And I... I'm one of the people who uses artificial speech engines on a regular basis, and I'm absolutely amazed by the quality. We can reasonably assume that similar success can be achieved in pretty much with any auditory stimuli if sufficient amount of investment of time and effort is, is put in place. And then we have, you were talking about uh, not being limited by the, the level that you've downloaded, but being in a kind of this uh, larger ecosystem, well, um, I want to use the word metaverse because it's kind of feels inevitable at this point. And all of that can be processed on uh, supercomputers away from the user. And this is where we have edge computing and cloud computing and with an access to 5G, which allows incredibly fast data stream 
on your device, wherever you are, providing you are connected to that um, ecosystem, we can suddenly see how all these things can come together. And uh, it doesn't sound, it doesn't feel that unrealistic or that distant. All these components are very much in existence, but maybe just the, the way they're being utilized and the, the kind of the mass adoption is not quite there. I do want to highlight two, two things, though, which occurred to me as, as you were speaking. One is what we've just spoken about over the past few minutes is not too different from, I think, one of your earlier questions at the start of this conversation, which was um, what was the process behind spatial workstations, some of, these, some of the other things that we built, in, in making it more accessible. To me, it's a very similar problem here. What you're really trying to do is, from an infinite number of options, you're trying to bring in as many constraints as possible, but just enough that makes sense. That was one point. The second is, which we haven't touched about, but I think will increasingly be important, is the responsibility of people making such systems, developing such hardware, software, and so on, but also the responsibility of people making content and the restrictions that come with it. Because, um, you know, as soon as you've got an always-on device and talking about some distant point in the future where everything that we envision or a part of what we envision collectively pans out, when you've got an always-on device that has a microphone, that has a camera, um, uh, not not the aspects of well, the obvious aspects of privacy, but it's it's quite possible that you know a user might not want to grant access, uh, give your app access to the microphone, and if you don't have that data stream coming in, the rest of the application should still be able to function. We we already see this happening in in the simplest of apps that we have today or the games that we have today that may may not rely on some of these technologies. But as we start thinking about modular pieces of content, so will the sort of hardware and software systems behind a lot of the devices that we'd expect to see in the future as well. And with this level of modularity, we'll also have modular controls that would limit access to some of this data. It wouldn't be a a free-for-all scenario, but increasingly people will be aware about what they provide, what data streams they provide access to, and then it's it's up to the, the rest of the world of, of creative technologists as well as designers to make the best use of any data that's available and create the best experience out of it. Varun, I think I could be talking to you for hours about this. I guess the jury's out on on what the future holds for immersive audio going forward. Um, I think we have really strong indicators already available and there's definitely enough material to have a nice debate about. But ultimately, like you said, these are very hard problems to solve and we simply don't know what is the next step. So I think it's probably a good place to to wrap this last segment of our conversation. We've talked quite broadly and and I'm conscious that some of the things that have discuss about a, a very broad and, and a very big picture. But I also brought that up on purpose because it's important to, I think anyone working in with immersive audio today, every anybody doing work in this area roughly knows where things stand. Um, and it is it is quite easy to then jump on a bunch of bandwagons about that that describe the future, and you know we jumped on a few of those bandwagons today. Uh, just now, while we talked about some of those futuristic things, 
and I'm fully conscious that this is an immersive audio podcast, but uh, again, if you have to like step back and zoom out, I think one of the things that we as audio people need to increasingly pay attention to is all the other aspects of the experience that makes it immersive and also makes it enjoyable. And part of this is simple things like voice. What role does an assistant play? Assistants are pretty much ubiquitous today, but they do you know, play a larger role in uh, as the technology moves forward. What do they sound like? How do they interact with everything else that you're created, creating? But also the opposite. If you had to make use of virtual voice voices, what would they sound like? And how, how would they add to the mix? And the other aspect as well, which I think is, is often overlooked, is when we're talking about shared experiences together, whether it's in VR today or some form of VR in the future or anything else, or even like the podcast just now, ultimately it's about bringing people together and having a conversation. You could be playing a game and having a conversation with your friends or you know arguing about something or just having a good time. And one of the mediums that we choose to use to communicate really well is our voice. And when you've got more and more of these shared experiences coming through, today we, we use voice technology, in my opinion, in, in a very simplistic way, whether it's it's gaming together or you know getting on a, on a video call with, with people you know. But as soon as you start bringing this into an immersive environment, the technologies we have today don't completely stack up because you've got microphone technologies that you know started with telephony and mobile audio and codecs and quality and like, we're doing this right now with the podcast. Right? We've plugged in better quality microphones that we're recording because the off-the-shelf microphones in in our, in our computers just aren't good enough. So what happens when we're in this immersive audio future when we still need to rely on many of these technologies that exist? We will have to bring our legacy with us. All technology doesn't change overnight. So a really interesting challenge, I think, was outside of the technology, pure technology domain as well. While many of these problems are being solved, we still need to work with our legacy and trying to bring in some of legacy technology or legacy methods of working and then making it fit really well in everything new that we build is is a great challenge. And it, it's a real opportunity there for us to, to bring everything that we've learned with audio and applying it to technologies that have been around for decades. As always, ask everybody, and I definitely want to ask you this question. Varun, can you share one piece of advice that really helped you in your career and your journey? Well, I, I already shared one from Andy Farnell earlier. Um, let me think of another one. To me, the biggest lesson and the one that's been the most useful is knowing that even with everything you know, you're probably not right. And there is an opportunity for you to improve your understanding of things right from the simplest, which is how do I use this compressor today? Um, or the largest of things, which is how do I you know, make sense of all of these new technologies that are coming in, or even just critiquing my work. And knowing that what I'm probably saying and what I'm doing is probably not going to be correct uh, actually makes it easier for me to then just go and break a bunch of rules and figure out what to do next. Varun, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for talking to me today. Likewise, this is an excellent conversation and thanks for having me. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to show your support, 
please consider becoming a Patreon. Not only are you supporting us, but you will also get special access to bonus content and much more. Find out more on our official Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash immersive audio podcast. You've been listening to the Immersive Audio Podcast, hosted by Oliver Cadell and Monica Bowles. This episode was produced by Oliver Cadell and Emma Reese and included music by Rhythm Scott. Got an idea for an episode or want to comment on something we've discussed recently? Drop us an email at podcast at 1618digital.com or find us on Twitter at iAudioPodcast. If you've enjoyed our show, head to our page on iTunes and leave us a review and rating. It really helps us out. Visit 1618digital.com slash immersive audio podcast to access show notes and other episodes and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? We're part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org. I'm Emily Reese from the podcast Level with Emily Reese, and I interview people who make audio for games, mostly composers. Our newest episode features composer Gordy Habb, about his music for Star Wars Squadrons, which is absolutely outstanding. You can find us at patreon.com slash level and levelwithemily.com. Hi, this is Michael Helms, host of the Location Sound Podcast. My recent guest is production sound mixer Byron Mayer, based out of Copenhagen, Denmark. We talk about recording sound on the feature film Torbos, the official Oscar entry for South Africa. Check out the latest episode. Hi, this is Christian from the Sound Effect Podcast. In our latest episode, you'll hear field recordist adventurer George Vlad from Mindful Audio talk about his travels and work, including his latest library, African Desert, all at soundeffect.com forward slash podcast. Hi all, this is Becky and Susan from the Sound Girls Podcast, where we speak to audio professionals from all walks of life. Join us Tuesdays at 9 a.m. and listen to the amazing array of sound humans talk about how they got into the biz. And a few cool things, like roadie nicknames and fizzy water preferences. You can find the Sound Girls Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as our website, soundgirls.org. Hey everybody, this is Tim from Tonebenders. In our latest episode, we talk with four-time Oscar winner Richard King. He tells us about the ultra-complicated sound for Christopher Nolan's latest film, Tenant. We talk about creating interesting sound design for scenes happening in reverse, how to build cinematic body punches, and his thoughts on the controversy over the film's dialogue mix. Listen wherever you find podcasts or at ToneBendersPodcast.com. Hi everyone, this is Sam Hughes, host of the Sound Architect Podcast, where I interview audio professionals around the world about their projects, their careers, and their advice. I've spoken to some of the most amazing sound designers on the top games, TV shows, and movies of our time. Our guests also include some of the biggest composers of our generation, and some of the most amazing voice actors I've ever spoken to. Catch the Sound Architect podcast wherever you listen to your podcast or at our website, www.thesoundarchitect.co.uk. See you there.
In our modern lives, we spend so much time thinking about what things look like that we tend to forget about our incredible sense of hearing. That's where we come in. I'm Dallas Taylor, and I'm the host of 20,000 Hertz, a podcast that reveals the stories behind the world's most recognizable and interesting sounds. In each episode, we chase down the hidden backstory behind a famous sound or sonic phenomenon. We followed sound designer Ben Burt on his hunt for the sound effects of Star Wars. He was hiking and his backpack caught on a, a guy wire that was leading up to a radio tower. And he heard what sounded like a blaster sound. We found out that dinosaurs probably didn't sound anything like Jurassic Park. If we were around when T-Rex was around, we might feel these sounds of the largest dinosaurs more than we would hear them through our ears. We've tracked down the origins of a drum sample that's been used in hundreds of hip-hop and electronic songs. During that time, everybody had drum breaks. And we had been doing songs where Greg would play these drum beats. We've explored the challenges of interplanetary communication. It's pretty amazing to think that I could be on Mars and say, Houston, I have a problem. And it'll be 40 minutes before they get back and say, what's up? And we've revealed how the Netflix audio logo almost included the sound of a goat. For a while, we were stuck on that goat sound. I thought that would be a good time. (laughs) This year on 20,000 Hertz, we'll uncover the origins of even more iconic sounds. Our dog. We'll also hear from a few surprise guests. In this run of Daffy, he's not the greedy money. Ooh, that's mine. Give that to me. We're bringing him back to the, uh, I'm Daffy. You know, Uh, we are all time travelers going one way. Subscribe to 20,000 Hertz wherever you get your podcasts. That's 20,000 Hertz spelled out without any numbers. Once you see our swirly purple icon, you'll know you're in the right place. And if you're already a fan of the show, tap the share button in your podcast player and post this trailer on Facebook or Twitter, or text it to someone directly who you think would love this show. 